All right, so we're in John for the next couple of weeks. John's gospel is unlike any of the other three gospels uh, for a couple reasons. Um, his writing is different, very different. You'll see that his attention to detail is, is way more uh, than, the, than the rest, and he focuses on these stories very deeply. It also contains episodes from Jesus' years of ministry that the other gospel writers don't include. Um, stories like when Jesus train, changed water into wine, or when Jesus met Nicodemus at night, or the woman at the well, or when Jesus encountered the woman caught in adultery, and the story that we're going to look at today when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, we're going to begin our eight-week series with John chapter 11 today because it is the chapter I pulled the title for our entire series until Easter, and that is the resurrection and the life. It comes right from this passage. So um, we're going to begin working through this. I didn't read from verse 1 because it's a little bit long, but we're going to start in verse 1 and work our way through the passage this morning. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So a certain guy named Lazarus is gravely ill, and we want to know who this man Lazarus was, right? Who was this one who was ill and then passed away from this illness? Well, according to scholars, Lazarus was not really that old. Um, he quite possibly could have been a contemporary Jesus in his 30s or 40s, uh, which means Lazarus' illness and death were quite unexpected. His death was quick, it was tragic, and it affected the whole community. The whole community was there mourning. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus were siblings who had a special relationship with the Lord Jesus. Mary was the one who anointed Jesus with perfume and then wiped his feet with her hair. And John records that incident in John chapter 12, right after this uh, raising of Lazarus. And, but this act of hers made such an impact upon John and all the disciples that John mentions it here even before he writes about the story uh, and recounts the actual events in the text. So it was a big deal that happened there. And so anyway, Lazarus is sick. Sisters are worried. They send word to Jesus saying that the one whom he loves is ill. Again, Jesus had a special relationship with them. Lazarus was dear to Jesus' heart. They mentioned that. I'm sure the sisters were summoning Jesus based upon that relationship that they had with him, hoping that he would come and heal Lazarus before he passed away. Right? And I say that because both sisters said the exact same thing to Jesus when he finally got to them. Verse 21 and verse 32, they both said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So this relationship goes back a ways, and, and, and with all of that relational history and the urgent request right, uh, to come and the expectation of the sisters, you would think that Jesus would have dropped everything and ran to his friend's bedside. But I want you to look at verse 4 through 6. What did Jesus do? Verse 4, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He stayed where he was two days longer. John records that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus and that this was the reason that he stayed two days longer. That doesn't make sense to all of us, does it? Right? If he loved them, then he would have gone to them. That's the assumption. But no, John says that he loved them, and so he stayed two more days where he was. 
thing that strikes me here is that Jesus didn't let the expectations of others determine his course of action. Love did. Love was what motivated Jesus to do what he did. Verse 6 says, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. And, you know, Jesus knows everything. His timing is perfect. He didn't allow himself to be manipulated into doing something or guilted into meeting everyone's expectations. He acted when and how he chose to act for the good of those around him. He always acted out of love. It's not a selfish act of Jesus to stay there. It was a selfless act of love for him to wait. Yeah, Jesus could have gone right away and healed Lazarus, right? That We all know that. He could have circumvented the pain and the grief and the anxiety and the disappointment, but he didn't. Jesus wanted to reveal something about himself, about God the Father, that is incredibly profound. And Jesus wanted to reveal to them all, that would be Mary and Martha, the Jews that were there grieving with them, Jesus' disciples and even Lazarus and and all the people down through history that were going to read this passage, including us this morning, right? Jesus wanted to reveal to all of us something important. And that something is the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ, his Son, in verse 4. And we're going to figure out what that is as we go along. So the glory of God could only be revealed in the fullness that Jesus wanted to be revealed if Lazarus died. So after two days, Jesus turned to his disciples and said, okay, guys, let's go to Judea again and see Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Simple enough, but not really. Why? Verse 7. So after this, he said to his disciples, hey, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, hey, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So Jesus just left Judea because so many Jews were against him. Jesus had enemies and lots of them. In fact, they tried to stone him. Uh, Disciples are like, Jesus, um, aren't you forgetting something very important here? Like the fact that they picked up stones to hurl at you last time we were there and, oh, we would have been next in line to receive those stones. And so are you sure you really want to go back there, right? And Jesus answered in a way that kind of makes you go, what are you talking about, right? Um, Verse 9, are there not 12 hours in a day? And yes, which would also mean there are 12 12 hours at night as well. And he says, if anyone walks in the day, he is not going to stumble because he sees the light of this world. So in one sense, Jesus is talking about the sun, right? When we walk around in daylight, we can see what's there. We're not going to stumble because the sun is shining. And, and, but yet in another sense, he's talking about himself because back in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And so Jesus' point was, walk with him. He is the light of the world. Jesus knows the path that's ahead, and he will get them to the destination that he's planned for them, right? If the disciples were to walk with him, the light would be in them, and they would go wherever he led them, and they would accomplish what he wanted them to accomplish. And after these things, he said, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Well, let's go to him. And so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. So why didn't Jesus 
come out and say that Lazarus was dead right off the bat, right? Well, back then people often referred to death as sleeping, and so when Jesus talked about Lazarus being asleep and going to awaken him, he wasn't lying. He was speaking the way that many of them would have spoken back then. And, but I believe that Jesus was giving his disciples a hint of what he was going to do, and he wanted to see if they were going to grasp it. Unfortunately, they missed that part altogether. They've keyed in on the sleeping part, right? And we're, we're like, well, then if, if he's just asleep, then he's going to wake up, right? So why should we go into this dangerous place if he's only sleeping and we're just going to wake him up? Jesus doesn't make any sense, right? So they didn't get it. So Jesus finally plainly just says, guys, Lazarus is dead. No beating around the bush. Don't sugarcoat it. Like, Lazarus is dead, verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, Jesus is just saying some weird stuff here. It just, right? Like, Jesus was glad he wasn't there. That's a surprising response. He loved them, right? Here's the deal. He was glad that he hadn't gone as expected and healed Lazarus as would have been assumed because he was such a good friend. He was glad because he had something more up his sleeve. Jesus loved those three siblings. He had the opportunity to show them just how much he loved them, and all the rest of us, too, for that matter. He also had a unique opportunity to demonstrate his power and his glory. He had already raised some people from the dead. We've seen that in the Gospels, but he had not raised anyone from the dead who had been dead for four days. Lazarus' body would have been decomposing by now, No one could call this a coma or anything like that. This would be an unprecedented miracle if this was to happen. And Jesus' power to raise the dead would be much more impactful than his power just to heal a sick man. Jesus was glad to give the opportunity to Mary, to Martha, disciples, to exercise faith. He says, so that you may believe, right? Now, Thomas is like in verse 16, well, let's just go too so that we die with him. Sort of a fatalistic response, I think. In one sense, Thomas is lacking faith, right? Because Jesus said that they would go and they would waken Lazarus. And so when they went there, so everything should turn out, right? Um, So Thomas should have believed that they would be okay. But in another sense, Thomas had great courage. Courage is doing what is needed and even when you're afraid. And Thomas' dedication to Jesus is admirable. He's like, I'm going to go with him, right? And so his courage in the face of legitimate threats was commendable. When we get to verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus waited a long time to arrive on the scene. One reason he did this was to prove the point that Lazarus was dead. No coma, no long nap. He was dead. He was in the grave so long now that his body was decomposing. Now what Jesus would do would be undeniably miraculous. But there were other reasons that he waited as well. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. 
So look at what Martha said to Jesus before anything else, right? She comes to Jesus. She sees him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her words are filled with disappointment and grief. She cannot understand why Jesus took so long to get there, right? Like, if you had just been here, like we asked you to be. And she's disappointed with the outcome of all of this, of Jesus waiting. However, she finishes her complaint with a strong statement of faith, right? But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And Jesus quickly checks to see where her faith is at. I think Jesus was finding out if she was testing God. Remember, we talked about testing God in the book of Exodus a few weeks ago. Would she believe in Jesus only if he did what she wanted him to do? Bring her brother back to life. Or would she believe even if he remained in the grave and she didn't see him until heaven? And so Jesus said, your brother will rise again kind of cryptid, right? He knows when he's going to rise, but he's also talking all that. And so Martha agrees. She believed that he would be raised to life in the last day and that they would be reunited in the presence of God. And then Jesus spoke his famous words to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Martha, to be raised again, all someone must do is believe in me, and he or she will, will live again and never die. Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe in me? And Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who came into the world to give us life, right? Martha believed. She didn't allow her disappointment with how things turned out to sour her faith in the goodness and the provision and the salvation of God. She still believed that Jesus was a Messiah even though Jesus did not do things the way she expected them to be done. Martha believed that Jesus would make things all, all things new again even though she was sitting in grief and pain at that very moment. Martha believed that Jesus would raise up those who believed in him and give them eternal life even though Jesus hadn't healed Lazarus when he was alive when he could have. So Martha's faith was in Jesus. It was genuine, right? Regardless of the outcome, she believed in him. I love that. Verse 28, now what happens? And when she said this, she went, called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And, <clears throat> and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply troubled in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus encounters Mary and Mary left Jesus, uh, Martha left Jesus, went and found Mary, telling her that Jesus wanted to see her. So Mary rose up. She goes out to find him. The other mourners thought she was going to the tomb to mourn and wail and to weep. And instead, she went to Jesus. She fell at his feet in grave disappointment with the hopes that were dashed. And she said the same thing her sister said, right? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You just sense the frustration, right? Anger, grief, disappointment. Incredible sorrow. Not the way it should be. 
Lord Jesus, you could have stopped this. He didn't have to die. You could have alleviated this pain and this sorrow. You could have, we could be rejoicing right now. Lazarus could be alive if you'd only been here. Verse 33 and 38, when Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Verse 38 says he was deeply moved again. The word can also mean to have indignation, like to, it's kind of reminiscent of a, a horse kind of snorting in anger. It's only used three other times in the New Testament, and two of those times it's translated as sternly warned. And the point is there's a little bit more going on here than meets the eye. Jesus was more than just deeply moved in, in like a sadness state. He, was, he did more than just groan in his spirit. There was a bit of indignation involved in his response. He was greatly troubled. He was greatly distressed. He was agitated, like stirring up water and it's bubbling. And, and Jesus was unsettled. He was unhappy. He was emotional to the point of almost angry. And all of this happened when he saw Mary and the people weeping. And then John records that Jesus wept. Verse 35. A two-word sentence, but quite possibly one of the most profound sentences in all of Scripture. You see, the author John wrote his gospel for people who were unsaved. Both Jew and Gentile wanted them to believe in Jesus and receive life. The main audience was a Gentile audience, and in the mind of a typical Gentile, Greek or Roman, whoever they were, when they would imagine or think of an all-powerful God who created the world, gave life to every creature, light for all of us to see. They would think of a God who was unaffected by emotion or unaffected by what others would do or not do. Commentator Barclay wrote, the Greeks would argue like this, if, if we can feel sorrow or joy, gladness or grief, it means that someone can have an effect upon us. Now, if a person has an effect upon us, it means that for the moment that person has power over us. I'm still quoting. He says, so no one can have uh, any power over God, and this must mean that God is essentially incapable of feeling any emotion whatsoever. The Greeks believed in an isolated, passionless, compassionless God. But in John's Gospel, we see a description of God that is not at all isolated or passionless or compassionless. It's quite the opposite, actually. In John's Gospel, we learn that God didn't isolate himself but that he sent Jesus, his son, and his one and only son, the I am, down to earth in human form. God took on flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. And then we also learn that Jesus was sent by God as God's expression of love to save us from our sin and its consequences and to give us eternal life. God is passionate about his creation. He came to redeem it. And then Jesus, who is also described by John as the powerful Word of God and the light of the world and the bread from heaven, who claimed that he was one with the Father, existed before Abraham. He proved all these things by being the one who would heal the sick and give sight to the blind and fed 5,000 people and walked on water and forgave sins and raised the dead. God would not do all that if he did not have compassion. God desires a relationship with us. He loves us. He has compassion on us. And so Jesus, who is God Almighty, come in the flesh to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of all mankind, proved he was God by doing all of these miraculous things. And yet, God himself, wrapped in flesh, was deeply moved. He was deeply indignant, when he, and he was greatly agitated when he saw Mary weeping. And he was visibly indignant when he came to the tomb and saw the realities of death. 
And the thought of that blows my mind as I was reading through this and preparing for this sermon. That blows my mind because here's the point. Our almighty God is affected by the humans he created. Our God is not aloof, distant, callous, heartless, emotionless. In fact, our God in the person of Jesus experienced anguish and distress when, he, when his people experienced anguish and distress. Our God wept when his people wept. Like, wow. It's not the only time Jesus wept. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 and following gives us another instance. I'm going to read it. It says this, When he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within. And they will not leave a stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept because he saw Jerusalem's forthcoming pain and destruction and death and the consequence of the refusal to repent and trust in him. And Jesus wept over their sin and the consequences that they would endure. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, meaning when he was, you know, here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus, while in the Garden of Gethsemane, was greatly distressed, emotionally agitated to the point that he sweat drops of blood and he cried out to his Father with tears as he faced the pain and agony of the cross and taking the punishment for all of our sin upon his shoulders. It's difficult to imagine, but it's true. The God of the universe was brought to tears when confronted by the awfulness of sin. The thought of that breaks my heart. It humbles me, right? But it also brings great comfort. You're like, well, how can that bring comfort, right? Here's the reason. Because Jesus understands. In fact, listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He says, we do not have a high priest. He's talking about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus wept from sorrow and indignation and agitation of his spirit because he saw and he lived and experienced the terrible reality of pain and agony and death that his creation must endure as a consequence of sin. The consequences of sin are so enormous and so all-encompassing and devastating that they bring about death. The unsaved world is bound up in sin and blinded in the darkness of sin and they do all that they can to ignore the pain, run from it and and from the agitation, and to medicate the agony, right? But deep down inside, sin causes humans to writhe in misery and weep in sorrow and cry out in pain because the wages of sin is death. And death is a big deal. And the effects of our own individual sin is enough to crush us. But we live in a world of sinners, and so we feel the effects of everyone else's sin around us too. And like Mary and the Jews that were with her, the response is fear and disappointment and weeping and agony of soul, and we are powerless to do anything about it. But again, <laughs> Jesus understands. And that's what's so encouraging about this passage. It, it gives us a panoramic view of God's character and his love. It's incredibly similar to what we see in the book of Exodus, 
Remember back in Exodus chapter 2 when we read about the children of Israel stuck in slavery for 400 long years? Here's what those poor, helpless slaves did. It says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. The word groan is also the word mourn. What those people were doing in Jesus' day. They mourned and groaned and were in distress and they cried out to God, help us, I can. And I can just hear them saying, if only you had been here, we would not be dying in slavery. But Exodus 2 continues. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, and he saw, and he, he was affected by what he heard and saw. So much so that God acted. God wasn't aloof. He had compassion on them. And what did he, his compassion and love compel him to do? He brought them up out of Egypt. He raised them up out of their bondage of sin and death. Because look at what happened in John chapter 11, verse 38. And Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there is an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. He raised the dead. Just like he raised Israelites out of Egypt, right? Jesus saw them weeping. Jesus heard their wailing. He was affected by their pain. He remembered their predicament. He was moved by love for them. He knew what needed to happen. And Jesus moved with compassion and a bit of indignation at the awfulness of sin and its consequences. And his compassion, his love, compelled him to do something about it. What it compelled him to do, it compelled Jesus to act. The only one who could do anything about it did something about it. He brought up Lazarus out of the grave. He raised Lazarus out of bondage to death in the tomb. He resurrected Lazarus out of the consequences of sin by raising him from the dead. And Jesus' compassion on us compelled him to go to the cross so he could give eternal life to everyone who believes. Same way. Because Jesus has the power to raise the dead. Verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes. His, he looked to his father and motivated by love, deeply moved by compassion and focusing his attention upon the God his Father, he prayed, Father, you always hear me when I pray. Thank you. I want these people to know that what's going to happen here is something that is sourced in you. It's going to display your love and power and glory so that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus went to the Father in prayer to receive what he needed. Catch what Jesus said before he prayed, though. He said that believing that God sent Jesus opens the door to seeing God's glory flood into our lives. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? When we come to understand the compassion of God, it's, it's life-changing. Apostle Paul wrote that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Scriptures are full of instances where God's judgment didn't really do anything to the hearts of his people. Their hearts just got harder. But God's kindness and compassion and love is what really is life-changing because it's so unexpected. 
Who expects Almighty God to be compassionate and kind to His creation? I want to look back at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 again. We read that first part about Jesus sympathizing with us uh, and having compassion towards us. And I want to listen again. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And, but here's why this is so comforting to me. The verse continues with the implications of this truth, the, the, the realities of what that means for us. Because Jesus sympathizes with our weakness and fully understands the awfulness of sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you catch that? The throne of grace. The compassion and kindness and sympathy of Jesus leads us to a throne of grace. Who's ever heard of a throne of grace? I've heard of a throne of judgment, a throne of justice, a throne of marble, a throne of power. A throne is a seat of power, a chair of a king, a place of royalty, right? An elevated position from which a powerful person rules and dominates over people. But a throne of grace? A throne is not a place where anyone is granted access. A throne room is a place where only the privileged and the powerful and the prosperous are allowed to come and have access, only when they are summoned by the one who's on the throne. But God's throne is different. It's a throne of grace, and it's flowing with compassion and kindness because the one who invites us into the presence of his graciousness understands and sympathizes not with our wealth and our wisdom and our strength, but with our weakness. Our weakness and our sin, our unworthiness and our failures are what lead us to this throne of grace because it is there that we receive mercy and find more grace to help us in time of need. There's something incredibly profound in this passage in John 11. In the beginning, Jesus said that in verse 4, Lazarus' illness was for the glory of God. Verse 14, he says, Lazarus' death was so that others would believe. And then in verse 40, um, just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So he joins belief in glory. So in the proximity of a tomb, surrounded by people wailing and mourning and carrying on with the stench of death in the air, coming out of that open cave, and Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'd see the glory of God? And you're like, the glory of God? There? Is Jesus kidding? What is the glory of God? Back in verse 4, that the Son of God may be glorified through the death of Lazarus. What is the glory that Jesus is referring to? Yes, it is most absolutely the, his power to raise Lazarus out of the dead, right? That is glorious, but it's more than that. Jesus is the living word of God. He's the embodiment of all that God is. According to Colossians 2, he, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. And so part of the glory that Jesus received and displayed to those watching and to all of us who read this story even today is his compassionate loving kindness that caused him to enter into the pain and death and messiness of sin so that he could raise us up and bring us before the Father's throne of grace. Instead of condemnation, he brought grace. 
Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the glory of God. And all it takes is for us to believe in the gracious, compassionate, loving God incarnate who willingly sacrificed his life in agony and pain so that we could undeservedly receive his grace and mercy and access to that glorious throne of God's grace. And even though we die, yet shall we live. The glory of God is the grace found in Jesus Christ. The glory of God is the grace found in Jesus Christ. And the compassion of God who understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses and who did not come into the world to condemn the world, but out of love in order to save it, is that God is with us. In the first chapter of John, the apostle wrote, The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He continues, for, his, for from his fullness, meaning from his fullness of grace and truth, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace greater than all of our sin and all of its consequences. In grace, Jesus gave us his Holy Spirit who is living inside each and every one of us. And the purpose of him being inside each and every one of us is so that he will conform us into the image of of Jesus. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, that's in us, there's freedom. And we with all unveiled face, think of Lazarus with his, the grave closed route, right? With unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord, the grace of Jesus, right? And we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, and so we are changed from one degree of glory to another by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we behold the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. You know, when I talk to believers that no longer attend church, you want to know the number one reason I hear them give as to why they don't. The church is too judgmental. They'll say, well, I can't get it right. I slip up one time, I'm judged. I can't deal with that pressure. I'm just going to be by myself. I'm going to isolate. And when I talk to unsaved folks, the number one reason they give for not wanting to place their faith in Jesus because we're all hypocrites, right? <laughs> Judgment is what they say. But if the glory of the Lord and the person of Jesus Christ is displayed through compassion and grace, through agonizing alongside others in the mess and the mire of sin, weeping with those who are suffering under the consequences of sin. Think of Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, right? And we are being transformed into the same image by the Spirit of God in us. Then wouldn't it be correct to conclude that of all people on planet Earth, we should be the least judgmental? Shouldn't we Christians be accused of being the most gracious, absurdly gracious, which would look like us graciously going to the person caught in the consequences of their sin or in the muck and the mire of the sins of others and then weeping alongside of them, acknowledging there's no way for any of us to fix this. It's far too gone. The body is in the grave, decomposed, stinking to high heaven. And, but in that moment, reminding one another that we simply believe in Jesus, the resurrection and the life, that we will see the glory of God in the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. And then go to that throne of grace, inviting everyone to go with you. Because we will not experience judgment at the foot of God's glorious throne, but grace. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect 
and weakness. And he says, in me you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses because I have in every respect been tempted as you are yet without sin. Therefore, dear child of God, he says, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. God's invitation to the throne of grace is not just for initial salvation. His invitation is open-ended. We need grace for every day. Why? Because we are, though we are forgiven believers, we still retain our sin nature. And thus we're all sinners being changed by the Holy Spirit incrementally from one degree of glory to another. And that's a process. And a process requires lots of grace. Listen to what the almost, I put in quotes, almost perfect Apostle Paul, as we would consider him, right? What he said about himself. Now this is the Apostle Paul. Set the stage for Christianity, right? How much he needed the grace of God in a moment of incredible transparency. Romans chapter 7, he says this, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. And so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see the members of my body, right? Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, he says. Who's going to deliver me from this body of what? Death. You hear his struggle? We've all been there. And if you can't admit that you've been in his shoes, then you're just lying to yourself. Paul struggled with sin just like the rest of us, and it frustrated him. He's like, who can save me from this struggle, this difficulty? How can I live in this mess? It's most assuredly I deserve condemnation, but here's the beauty of the throne of grace. Paul cries out, who will save me from this death? Right? Thanks be to God, he says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he continues. There's a chapter break, but it doesn't stop there. He goes, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. It's all grace. Grace from God through Jesus Christ and grace to others from Jesus Christ. And then Paul continues, he says, So then, brothers, all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, fear of condemnation. No, you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, we go to his throne, we say, Daddy. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may, what? Also be glorified with him grace and glory. My exhortation is simply this. Go to God's throne of grace every day. Humbly receive the grace and forgiveness of God. And then from that humble position of being a recipient of undeserved favor and compassion, have compassion on those around you. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Love as you have been loved. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And give grace just as you have received it, freely and lavishly. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you so much for the story of Lazarus, and I'm, I'm thankful that you, Almighty God, the creator of all that is and ever was and ever will be, that you're affected by us. Blows my mind. And you weren't just affected, you decided to do something out of compassion, and you sent Jesus down to earth out of love and grace to provide a way for us to be in a relationship with you that would be marked by grace where we could call you Daddy and go to the foot of your throne of grace and receive everything we need in order to just get by and live and to live this life that you've given to us. Oh, we need you so desperately, not just in salvation. We need you every day. We need your grace. Thank you for giving it to us. May we receive it. May we not be so proud to think that we don't need it. May we go daily to receive your grace and find mercy to help in our time of need. And thank you that Jesus raises the dead. And we have hope that no matter what happens here on earth or how many times we mess up, that your grace is going to raise us up to be seated with you in heavenly places and we have heaven and eternity to look forward being with you forever and ever. What a wonderful, glorious, encouraging thing. Fill our hearts with that hope and with that confidence as we go from here into our messy world and give us strength for the days ahead of us through your grace. For your strength is made perfect in our weakness. We pray this in the gracious name of Jesus. Amen.